Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, let's open those up to Acts chapter 12. chapter 12. We'll be reading that whole chapter today. And this is one of those uh, situations uh, where there's some solemn things that happen in Acts chapter 12, but we also get to see at least some of Luke's sense of humor. I don't know if you guys get as much uh, laughter out of the book of Acts as I do from time to time. Uh, but Acts chapter 12 is one of those situations where we see the rulers of the world are trying to come against God and his people, and we see that they only get to do as much of that as God allows. And so we're going to get to see the death of James in this passage, and we're going to get to see the imprisonment of Peter. Uh, but Peter is miraculously saved, whereas James is not. And so we get to see that God constrains the hand of, of everyone, of all leaders across the world uh, under his sovereign will. And we don't always understand what or why these things happen. Uh, but we also get to see that there's, there's humor in life and there's humor in Scripture from time to time. And Acts 12 is one of those that just makes me chuckle quite a bit um, as I read it. And I think you'll see the humor in it as well once we get into it. Uh, but I want to open us up with a word of prayer. And then we'll jump into what the Lord has for us here today. Father, I'm grateful for the fact that uh, we can come before you as your children, that we get to uh, cry out the name of Jesus, and in that cry we have salvation. And Lord, as we ponder the things of Acts, I pray that our hearts would be open to anything that the Holy Spirit might be trying to tell us today, or that we would see that you are completely sovereign and that uh, the only things that happen uh, to us come across your desk and you either approve them or don't approve them. And Lord, all of this is in your hand. And I pray that that would give us the peace uh, that Peter had while he was sleeping in his jail cell in this chapter. So Lord, help us uh, to see this well and to honor you through the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin in verses 1 to 4. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. It says, About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of, uh, four, squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. And so we begin with about that time. And what Luke is tying this into is uh, where Barnabas and Paul are in Antioch collecting money. If you'll remember last week, we had talked about a prophecy from Agabus who had come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he prophesied that at some point, and we don't really have a clear understanding of when that famine is going to hit, but a famine is going to hit, and it's going to rock the Roman world. 
And the young church in Antioch decided to raise money to send back with Barnabas and Saul uh, to support the church in Jerusalem. All right, so when he says about that time, he's connecting that back to what we studied last week uh, where they were raising money and gathering resources. And at the same time that all this is happening, the uh, apostles in Jerusalem are running into problems with King Herod. All right, now, if you're familiar with the Bible, King Herod is probably a name that you've heard before, but you might not be aware of this. The Herod that's mentioned here in Acts chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa I. And he's the third Herod that we have come across in our when we started the book of Matthew and up to this point of the book of Acts. This is the third Herod, the third King Herod that the church has encountered. All right. Uh, And we're going to see one more. We'll have Herod Agrippa II. And he's going to be the one that Saul, then Paul, uh, addresses in Acts 25 and 26. So there's four different people from the uh, Herodian dynasty um, that we have dealt with. The first was Herod the Great. That was Agrippa, this man's grandfather. Uh, He's the Herod who killed a lot of children at the beginning of the book of Matthew in order to try to keep Jesus from coming to power. Uh, And then we have the second Herod was Herod Antipas, who was the man that had John the Baptist beheaded. And he was the man who Jesus went before in Luke chapter 23. And so he didn't really get a whole, uh, involved a whole lot in Jesus' trial, but that man was uh, Agrippa's uncle. And then we have Herod Agrippa the first here, uh, who's continuing the family tradition of persecuting God's people through killing James and imprisoning Peter. And like I said, we'll eventually meet Herod Agrippa, Agrippa II uh, in Acts 25 and 26, who Paul will give an account of near the end of the book. He's going to share the gospel and present himself to this Herod as well. And all these kings were kings over Israel, but they're unlike previous kings. These kings have been appointed as kings by the Roman emperors and the Senate. All right, so... Because, because of this, they're not really loved well by the Jews because they're seen as puppets of the Roman Empire. And they're not really important to the Romans because, look, if you screw up, we'll just kill you off and put somebody else in your place. It's not a big deal. And so they're always on pretty tentative ground politically uh, in, throughout their careers. And because of that, we find uh, the Herod's are constantly striving to maintain control over what they have and what they're looking after. All right? Commentator John Stott commentated, uh, said this in his commentary on Acts, that King Agrippa was known to be really anxious to preserve the peace that the Roman uh, government had strived for, especially in Palestine, and therefore he really disliked when minorities disrupted it. So he's not a huge fan of the Jews either. They don't like him. He doesn't like them. Um, but in order to keep the peace, Herod Agrippa would seek to settle the Jews down by conscientiously uh, trying to observe the law when he was around them. He would act as the Romans do. When he's around the Romans, he would act as the Jews do um, in order to uh, keep the Jews happy. And part of that is now in persecuting the church, which makes the Jews happy. Uh, That persecution of the church cost James his life. Now this is 
uh, James, the son of Zebedee. There's a couple of Jameses in Scripture. This is James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the thons of, sons of thunder. All right, you got James and John, and he was one of the sons of thunder. And because we don't really know why Herod decided to kill James, but it pleased the Jews. And because of that, he decided he wanted to go above and beyond that and try to kill Peter as well. Uh, but it was Herod's desire to maintain the law that spared Peter's life for a while. Right? Agrippa wants to score some political points by persecuting the church, but he would have gone completely the other way with what he was trying to do in this persecution if he had put Peter on trial during the festival of the Passover. All right? The festival of unleavened bread, it comes right after the Passover celebration. And it lasts for about a week after the Passover occurs. And so uh, with that, the Jewish law does not permit trials or sentencing to occur during that time. So Peter gets to be thrown in prison for a while uh, until the Jewish celebrations are over. And based on what we see here in this maximum security guard detail that was assigned to Peter, it would appear that Herod, uh, someone has told Herod that it's hard to keep this guy in a jail cell. Right? If you'll recall, the last time Peter was arrested, he was arrested with the other apostles in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, an angel opened the doors of the jail in the middle of the night and brought them all out. And so to keep that from happening again, Peter was assigned four squads of four soldiers to watch over him until he was executed. So these guys would rotate four on, four off, but they wanted to make sure that all of these people are focused on this man. They want to keep him in prison. And in verse 5, it says this, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. All right, so what we're seeing here is a, is a battle between the world and the kingdom of God. Right? The battle lines have been drawn at this point. You've got King Herod coming against the church. Blood has been shed. Herod's trying to do more damage. And what does the church do? They come together and they pray for a brother in Christ. Again, from John Stott's commentary, he says, Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. So you have the world wielding its power, the authority of Herod, the, the sword, and the prison, and then you see the power that the church yields, which is the power of prayer and the power of God. And this power is more than enough because when the sovereign God of the universe hears the prayers of His people and He chooses to act on their behalf, there's nothing in the world that can stop Him. Acts or Isaiah 14.27 says this, The Lord of armies Himself has planned it, therefore who can stand in its way? It is His hand that is outstretched, so who can turn it back? Right? When our sovereign God extends his hand to do something, there is nothing in this world that can stop it from happening. And so the Lord works again to release Peter from prison in verses 6 to 11. Let's look at that. 
When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in the front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. So we see maximum security going on with Peter. He is shackled to two soldiers. Right? Even Paul doesn't get shackled to two at one time when he gets thrown into prison. But Peter is shackled between two soldiers. And according to verse 4, there are at least two more guarding the door. So he's got four people in really close proximity to him. It would appear by all human standards that this man's not going anywhere. Right? He looks secure. And yet, through God's angelic provision, Peter is woken up, the chains fall off, and somehow Peter walks right out of the prison without anyone stopping him on his way. Right? Nobody steps in. Nobody says a word. We don't know how this happens, but it happens. And one of the things that amazes me in these verses is how deeply asleep Peter is at this point. Right? James has died a martyr's death. Right? He's the first apostle to die a martyr's death. Most of them will, all but John. All right? But he's the first. Peter is in prison, and let's be real, he's seen this song and dance before. Right? He knows what's about to happen. He's going to be put on mock trial, just like what happened to Jesus, and then they're going to find some reason to execute him, and then he's going to die. Like, there's really no ifs, ands, or buts about this. And so reason would tell him that he's facing the same fate that Jesus faced. He's facing the same fate that James faced. He's about to die. And yet, he's asleep. He is deeply asleep. He's sleeping so soundly that when the angel of the Lord shows up, shining brightly in his cell, he doesn't stir at all. The lights just suddenly came on, bright as an angel would be, and Peter has no idea he's there. And so the angel has to strike Peter on the side in order to get him up. So he's like, quick, get up. I don't have all night here. We got places to go. I need you to wake up. And Peter just kind of groggily gets up. I mean, if you read it, it's like the angel speaking to a child. Get your shoes on. Get your cloak on. Come on. We don't have all day. Right? I've got places that I need to be. And so Peter groggily gets up. He's putting these clothes on. And he casually just walks out of the prison. The doors are opening. The shackles are falling off. And Peter just walks out. Now how is it possible that Peter can sleep this deeply, this soundly, in the face of almost certain death? And the reason for that is because this is a man that is completely at peace. He's completely at peace. 
He knows that he is right with the Lord. He knows that God is God loves him and is watching out for him. And no matter what happens, Peter is completely at peace. And in his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul also talks about peace like this. He too is in prison. He too has no idea how this is going to turn out for him. And yet, in this situation, he writes these words to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1, verse 20 to 24, he says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means more fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul has looked at his two options, life and death, the same two options that every single one of us face on a daily basis, right? We're either still alive or we're dead. I mean, that's really the only things that we have uh, in the hopper there. And he realizes that because of his relationship with Christ, death offers a better outcome for himself because to die in Christ means we get to spend an eternity with Christ which is far better than anything this life has to offer. There is nothing that we should be willing to trade eternity with Christ for in this life. Everything in this life is passing away. Everything is perishing. And so Peter and Paul see this relationship with Jesus and they see that eternity is far longer and far better than the 70, 80 years of whatever it might be that we might trade that for here in this life. But Paul also understands like if I live, right, if this doesn't end in my death, then that is going to be more fruitful work for Christ. And that would be better for the church. And that would be better for all the non-believers that he's going to reach with his preaching and his teaching. And so Paul says, I'm good either way. Right? If he lives, he will continue to work for Jesus. If he dies, he will ultimately be with Jesus. And with that perspective, he has peace no matter which way his imprisonment goes. Paul speaks of this peace in chapter 4 of Philippians, in verses 4 to 7, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? The peace of God comes in situations where no one understands why we don't have anxiety and fret and worry in our life. It, it is beyond all worldly comprehension. And Peter, though he doesn't voice any of that here in our passage this morning, he sleeps deeply with the peace of someone who shares that same perspective as the Apostle Paul. If he lives through this, he will continue to serve Christ. If he dies, he will be reunited with his friend and his Lord. And so either way, he's got good things ahead of him. And before we go any further in the passage, I want to stop for a moment and ask, do you have this same peace? 
Do you know for a fact that if today is your last day here on this earth, if your heart stops beating and as your eyes close for the last time in this world, will you be with Jesus for eternity? I mean, that's not a rhetorical question. This is something that we need to ponder and we need to make sure that we are certainly assured of. Right? If not, if, that, if you don't have that kind of peace, God is offering you salvation from your sins here this morning. From the moment that Jesus died on the cross on your behalf, you have the opportunity to be forgiven of your sins. You can have the same peace that Paul experiences. You can have the same peace that Peter experiences. All you have to do is acknowledge your sin and your rebellion against Him and repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And God is faithful to forgive all sin whenever we repent. So that offer is extended to everyone today. You can have the same peace that Paul and Peter share. And as a follower of Christ, your death is not something that you should fear. Right? It's the doorway from this life of sin and hardship and pain and it goes into the next life where you will experience nothing but love and joy in the presence of our Savior for eternity. That should bring us peace. No matter what tomorrow brings, I have peace. Whether that means that I continue to strive in this life to make Christ known, to glorify Him through the preaching and teaching of His Word, or if tomorrow I find myself face to face with my Savior, I'm good. Do you have the same peace? Have you made the decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? And if you're a believer here in the, this morning, do you trust God? How deeply do you trust God? Right? Do you trust the sovereign Lord enough to sleep like this in the face of your impending death? Right? You know, tomorrow I die. Tonight I sleep well. Do you trust the Lord that much? Do you trust Him enough to live a life that might put you in this situation at some point? Right? Peter put so much faith in the Lord that he's willing to go against people like Herod Agrippa. He's willing to go against the Sadducees and the Pharisees to, to tell them that, hey, that you're not living right, right in your life and you're going to stand accused and condemned by God someday. Are you willing to live that way? Because it's this that constantly gets the apostles and the other disciples in trouble. They trust God enough with their life to stand against a dark and dying world and say, no, this is not right. As believers, sometimes facing our own mortality is easier than facing the death of someone we care about. Right? So Peter, facing his own mortality, is sacked out. I mean, he's sleeping deep. But notice, though, that the church isn't resting at all. Right? In verse 5, Luke said that the church was praying fervently to God for Peter. And after Peter is free, he makes his way to the place that the church was gathering to pray for him. And this situation is absolutely hilarious. Like you've got that heavy part there at the beginning, but this is pure comedy gold. Luke 
I think, enjoyed himself while he was writing this part of the story. Let's look at verses 11 and 19. It says, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked on the door at the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, but because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing out at the outer gate. They said, you're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be, with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So here we have the church praying for Peter at a woman named Mary's house. All right, Mary is the mother of John Mark. All right, John Mark is like two, two names pretty much together. You got your Hebrew name of John, your uh, Roman name of Mark. All right, and he's going to be uh, the author of the Gospel of Mark. All right, so he's the guy that wrote that. This is his mom's house. All right, he's also Barnabas's cousin. We find that out in Colossians 4. So just trying to connect all the dots here where this name comes from. Uh, and Mary must have been a woman of means because this is a very large house, right? It has a gate, it has a courtyard, and it has enough room. We don't know how many, but it says many people from the church uh, of Jerusalem are in there while they're praying for Peter. And so this is a big place, right? And when Peter gets to the house in the middle of the night, he knocks at the gate and a servant named Rhoda comes to the gate to answer Right? So you've got, so imagine this. Think about it like this. Peter's on the lamp. Right? He's escaped from prison. The people who want him dead will at some point probably realize he's gone. Right? And they're going to come look for him. And they will probably come to this house, which is why Peter decides, like, he lets everybody know what, knows what happened and he goes away. And Luke doesn't even mention where he goes because he might not know. And so he goes away to hide. So, I think that you've got Peter thinking, they're, they're going to come here and look for me. And so we've got Peter knocking on the door. And you have Rhoda coming out, and he, she goes, who is it? Right? And Peter's, Rhoda, it's me. It's Peter. Let me in. And Rhoda, after hearing Peter's voice, gets so excited that he's there that she leaves him outside on the street and runs across the courtyard back into the house to tell everyone who's praying for him that he's there. And in my mind, I just see Peter standing there like looking back and forth, right? As she leaves going, did she really just leave me out here? Right? And so like he's knocking a little bit more forcefully, but he's got to be quiet about it because he doesn't want to alert the neighbors to, to where he is, right? I'm sure Herod would love to pay somebody for his location, because he's been made full of now, and he wants to know what's going on. And so he doesn't want to alert anybody to where he is, so he's like, no, no. Rhoda, Rhoda, open the gate. 
I can't be standing out here on the street. Open the gate. Brutal. And what's even funnier is that this probably even took a lot longer than it was really necessary because the people who were praying for Peter didn't believe he was actually outside. So Rhoda gets back inside. She goes, hey guys, uh, Peter's here. And they think she's out of her mind. Right? They, you're out of your mind. But she keeps insisting that it's true. And so the connotation seems to be here that this took some convincing. Right? No, he's really outside. I mean, really. Like right now, he's outside. And what I don't understand is apparently she has the ability to open the gate. Why didn't she just go let him in? Right? But she spends the time trying to convince everybody else that he's outside. And the church doesn't believe he's there. But why do you think that if they're praying in faith, they believe that God has the ability to open you know, the gate again to let Peter out of prison? Why would they not believe that Peter was there? Well, we don't know what they were praying for. It may have never even crossed their mind to pray that Peter would be released from prison. Right? In their mind, maybe they were praying for Peter to represent Christ well as he dies. Or maybe it would be that uh, they would be peace for his heart, which is why he's sleeping so well. Or it could have been that they're just really optimistic about this judicial process and they're praying that uh, Herod would give him a lesser sentence than death, which would be naive, I think. But, but we don't know. We don't know what's going on in this room before Peter gets there. We just know that when he's there, they would rather debate about Rhoda's sanity and whether or not the person standing outside is Peter or his angel, whatever that means, uh, rather than going down and checking for themselves. Right? Now we're going to sit around and have a conversation about this. Right? But eventually they go down, they let Peter in, and he explains what happens to them. They want, he wants them to share the story with James and the brothers. Now this James is James, the brother of Jesus. All right? He ends up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So we're going to see his name pop up quite a bit from here on out. Uh, and then after this, he, after he tells them what's going on, he quiets them down, tells them what happened. Then he goes off to a different place so that the authorities don't come and arrest him at Mary's house. So we see, right, Peter trusts God, but he also it shows some practical wisdom here, right? He's not trusting that he's completely untouchable, right? He's not just throwing himself back in Herod's face being like, nah, 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 you can't keep me, right? So he sees that he's been given a gift. He is gracious for that, grateful for that gift. And then he goes and he tries to hide in order to keep from being arrested at this place. And this is where we say goodbye to Peter, All right? This, after what happens here in Acts chapter 12, Peter's going to fade into the background of the church, Right? He's still active. He's still working. He's working hard in the church at Jerusalem. Uh, but we will not see him anymore except one more time in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 15. And all he's going to do is he's going to speak out about uh, an issue that's going to come up with the church in Antioch. So Barnabas and Saul are going to come and present an issue that's presented itself at the church in Antioch. And Peter's going to speak out on it. But this is it. Peter is no longer going to be uh, present. It's all going to focus on Barnabas and Saul, who will be known as Paul, right after this. And so it says, after Peter's escape, it took until the morning for people to realize that he wasn't there. How does that work? 
right? We see a lot of interesting things happening here. So it takes all the way until the morning for them to realize that the prisoner that they had four people guarding, two people shackled to, is no longer there. And after a thorough search for Peter came up empty, Herod had the guards interrogated. You can probably just insert the word tortured there, right? He's trying to find out what happened. Uh, and then he has them killed. And popular opinion here believes that um, Herod probably thought that this was an inside job. Right? If you don't have any kind of faith in a supernatural God, then this has to be an inside job. Right? So somebody paid off the guards or something along that lines, and they are the ones who let him go. And, I mean, given the level of security that was there, this is a, a good assumption. I mean, you would think that if you didn't believe that he actually followed a God that could do this. Um, there is no other way of escape other than divine intervention. And so according to Roman law, if a prisoner who is being guarded by a Roman escapes, then you are then culpable for whatever penalty that prisoner had acquired. And this prisoner was going to be sentenced to death no matter what the mock trial turned out to, to say. And so all of the guards that had guarded Peter were killed. Right? And after this incident, Herod goes from Judea to Caesarea. And Luke follows up with Herod Agrippa I by letting us know what eventually happens to him in verses 20 to 23. It says, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They, together they presented themselves before him, and after winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. And that's graphic, right? right? This is a very brief summary of the end of Herod Agrippa's life. And we're not, I'm not just not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, but what we should take away from this is that he's just going about his kingly business, right? He's got issues with other countries. He's doing his kingly thing. And then the people begin to treat him as a god, and when he didn't point their worship back to the place where worship should be, which is Yahweh, the only one true God, God called for his life. God ended his life right then. Throughout this whole chapter, we have seen what the world is capable of. And throughout this whole chapter, we've also seen what God is capable of. And any power that the world seems to hold isn't real power, not ultimate power. Right? That's not to say that governments aren't strong and that political leaders aren't powerful, but they don't have any real and lasting power. God might allow a nation to flex from time to time and to maybe even get a little bit big for their britches, so to speak, um, but none of this overrides what God is capable of. Right? We saw that he allowed James to die. We don't know why. We don't know why James died. We don't know why Peter lived. Right? We're given none of that. But in the end, the people that tried to take both of their lives only have the power that God allows them to have. 
Right? When God was ready for Herod to grip his life, he took it. He didn't ask permission. He didn't say, well, we'll give him another chance. When he was ready for it, Herod Agrippa died. Herod didn't worship God the way that God should have been worshipped. And eventually God says, your time is up. Right? The curtain has closed. Herod Agrippa's life is over. You've got him strutting around, dressed in these fine robes. He's allowing people to talk about him as though he's a deity. And God says, I'll show you deity. And he took his life. And that's the end of Herod Agrippa. But Luke, in, show, in wanting to show that the power of the Lord is not lessened or weakened in any way, shape, or form, he goes on to say, the word of God spread and multiplied. Right? Real simple, but he's just casually letting you know there, Herod Agrippa ended, and God ended him. But his word spread and multiplied. God will not be stopped. And then in verse 25, it says, After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. All right, so after they had gotten done gathering this money, this is probably something that took a couple of weeks to accomplish. By the time Barnabas and Saul get back, Herod's dead. All right, so they're in this process. They're going on, you know, doing what the kingdom of God requires of them. And suddenly, you know, the king of Israel is gone. And so to walk away with, from this today, I just have one idea that I want you to walk away from this morning. One main idea that's going to roll around in your head, and that is that God is sovereign. God is absolutely and completely sovereign. We might not have any understanding of the reason why he allows us to go through the things that we go through. Right? Life is full of ups and downs, hardships. And sometimes God steps into those hardships and says, nope, we're not having that hardship. We're going to pass that along. That's not going to happen here. And then other times, it seems like God looks at his faithful people, some of the most faithful people, and applies pressure on their life, knowing that he could remove that at any time. And we could spend a lot of time wondering around why. Why did God allow this to happen? Why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happen, happening to someone that I love when I know that God has the ability to change that? And unfortunately, the why question in the counseling that I have done with people, they always want to know the why, and there's never, almost never a good solid answer to that question. But what is a question that we can answer? What do we do in the face of this type of struggle? What do we do when someone that we love has been killed and then we're on the verge of being killed ourselves? What do we do when we are sick or someone that we love is sick? What do we do when we're struggling financially? What do we do when all of life seems to be crumbling around us? Where can we find the peace that Peter has, the peace that Paul has? And it's only by pressing into God, right? If we try to put our faith in anything other than God, we're going to find that it's going to be swept away. If it's our spouse, death, sickness, an accident, anything can take that away. If it's our children, same thing. A job, here today, gone tomorrow. 
right? If it's our finances, what happens when the U.S. economy collapses? It's gone. All of it's gone. You've put all your hope in all of this, all of this sense of peace that you have, and suddenly because you've placed it in something that is not eternal, something that cannot and will not bear the weight of that, all of a sudden your world is upended. And yet Peter today, knowing that God could save him but he might not, slept soundly in his jail while he was getting ready to die. And we can have that same kind of peace. We just have to keep our eyes on God. We have to keep seeking His glory and letting Him be glorified through everything that happens to us, whether that be something that is up and to the right or hardcore down to the left. Like We glorify God in every circumstance, in every situation. How about you guys? Do you understand this about God's sovereignty? Are you one who wonders whether God loves you or not in the midst of struggles like this? I can assure you He does. He loved you enough to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross in your place so that no matter what happens to you, you can be restored in relationship with the Father. God loves you no matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what happens to your loved ones in this life. God loves you. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful both for your love and we're grateful for the fact that we can lean heavily into your sovereignty. We can trust that you are in control, that nothing has come into our life that has not first crossed your desk. And Lord, I pray that no matter what we're all experiencing here, uh, we would lean into you. And if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, um, has not accepted salvation in Christ, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray that we can go from this place proclaiming the message of the gospel, proclaiming the, the goodness and the sovereignty of, of your name as we go and as we see people uh, that are struggling with what this life throws at them. Lord, help us to show that peace that surpasses all understanding to the watching world as we go through all that you would have us to do uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.